right. Thank you, Debbie, for that. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 8. While you're finding your place, I, I, I do... I hadn't seen that video until this morning. I don't, did y'all notice that, that cookies can be spiritual? Did anybody? Cause you remember a few months ago I gave you that recipe. So if you take that recipe and there's, there's a, there's a truth there. So just wanted to encourage you with that. All right. Now let's get down to business. Uh, imagine with me. You've got a friend, maybe you took him some cookies, maybe that's the way we get into this. But, but you've got a friend, you've kind of been praying for him, and you, you want to share the gospel with him, you want to be able to present Jesus to him. And uh, so one day you engage in a conversation, and out of the, out of the blue, uh, maybe they're not a church person, but out of the blue they said, can you just tell me why, you know, I, I've looked at the Bible, why is there an Old Testament and a New Testament? I mean, imagine if they were to ask you and say, what, what is the difference between the old and the new? And they might even say something like, you know, because I've kind of read the old, and it's kind of hard to understand. And it's kind of hard to, um, you know, and it just, I, I'm not sure it relates to me. And in fact, when I read over there in the old, God's kind of harsh. When he deals with the people. And he's, he can be really harsh when he deals with their sin. So, so can you tell me, why is there an old and a new? What's the difference? Now, you're probably not going to get that question, but you might. And we, you may have that question because you may wonder, why is there an old and a new. What is it? What is that about? And 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 what's the difference? Now, I don't want to give you really a theological answer, and I'm sure we could make any number of arguments that the Old Testament sets up for the new, and it introduces Jesus, and all these different things. But but just let's just think about it simply, because I heard a guy talking about this week, and it kind of intrigued me. But but think about this: the word testament is also translated covenant. So I want you to think about. When you think about the scriptures and you think about the old and new, think about there's an old covenant and then there's a new covenant. Now, when you read the Old Testament, there's a number of different covenants. You've got the, no, no, I don't know how you say it, the Noahic covenant. God made a covenant with Noah. Let's just say it that way. Uh, then God made a covenant with Abraham. And, and then God made the covenant with Israel, kind of the Mosaic covenant, if you will, that was kind of revealed. And, and uh, man, it just deals with a lot of it in the book of Exodus. Later on, you had the Davidic covenant. And so there's at least four different covenants that you have in the Old Testament. But when, the, when, the, when we think about the Old Testament as the Old Covenant, think about the Mosaic covenant, which was God's covenant with his people Israel. And so really the Old Testament, one way to look at this thing is the Old Testament is God's revelation of the covenant with his people Israel. Because it kind of leads up to the law. God gives them the law. He expects them to live by the law. They do the sacrificial system based upon the law. They break the law. I mean, and that's really what it's about. So you've got this old covenant. Well, then you get over to the New Testament And you remember what Jesus said the night before he was crucified. They sat down to the meal and and he took 
the bread and then he took the cup after supper and he said, this cup is the what? It's the new covenant in my blood. And so I want you to be, I want us to think about, we're thinking about the old and the new, the Old Testament, New Testament. Think about the old covenant and uh, the new covenant. And, and so if your friend wants to know which one is better, or, or if you ever have a friend that wants to know, or if you want to know which one of those two is better and why we need them, then today is for you because we're going to talk about the what, what the writer of Hebrews calls the, the better covenant. Now, let me just kind of remind you, you may be new with us, hadn't been in our study of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews, uh, by the way, just remember, Hebrews is the most Old Testament of the New Testament books. It's really the only one that deals in any kind of great detail with, with the Old Covenant. But so it's, so it's kind of a challenge. Well, the reason it's so Old Testament is because it's written to, to Jewish people. And the writer's concern was what was happening. They were going through some difficulty. They were struggling. They were having some things going on. And, and, and the, the tendency or the temptation for them was to go back to the old way. And, and so the writer was greatly concerned. And he says, listen, you, you don't want to go back to the old covenant because we have the new. And, and he'll go in and he'll give kind of a pretty good discussion about about why that's significant and why that's important. Now, last week, you may remember, if you were with us last week, you may remember up in uh, chapter 7, verse 22. In fact, if you've got your Bible open to chapter 8, look up in verse uh, chapter 7, verse 22. Uh, it says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a, now there's our word, a better covenant. Now, uh, last week we talked about the word guarantor. Uh, it's an interesting term. I almost... A question almost popped out. Have you ever needed a bail bondsman? But I, I did, I decided not to ask you that. Uh, but, but, but that word guarantor means to provide surety to someone. Uh, if we write a check, our bank kind of is the guarantor for that. And if you don't have the, the funds to cover it, they assess you a fee. And then they come, you know, what? But the idea is they guarantee that that money's there. They guarantee that that money's good. That's kind of the picture. Just like a bail bondsman would guarantee. Uh, he pays somebody rent. He says, I, I'm giving you this money and I guarantee this guy's showing up at court. So that's the idea. Well, the Bible says that Jesus is the surety. He's the guarantor that the new covenant is better. Than the old. And that's really what we want to get to. And that's really what we want to sit down and talk about. So how can Jesus be the guarantor of a better covenant? Well, look down at chapter 8. And we're going to try to read the whole text. And we're going to pick out a few things that I think will help us. Uh, verse 1. Key verse. Now some of you, have been, if you've been in our Hebrew study, uh, you might have been thinking, this is deep. This is theological so what's the point? Well, here's what the writer says. Verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying. He's looking back to the... You know, last week we talked about the better priesthood. And we've been talking about how Jesus is better. Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the old priesthood. I mean, Jesus is just better. And he says, now the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven a minister in the holy places, in the true tent, 
that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Why? Because Jesus was of the wrong tribe. But he says they serve a copy of the shadow of the heavenly things. Important point there. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be uh, my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor uh, and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant... He makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. Shall we pray together? Father, in these next few minutes, Lord, help us to take some deep theology, some deep scriptural truth, and help us to understand why this covenant is better. But even more so, Lord, help us to understand why it matters to us. Why does it matter that we have a better priest? Why why does it matter that we have better promises? Well, because you're a God of mercy. And so God, open the eyes of our heart this morning. Teach us. Give us clarity. And we'll give you the glory and the honor for all you say and do. And we pray in the name that's above every name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, so how do we know the, the, the new is better than the old? How can you explain? How can you say to your friend when that ever happens, if it ever does, that the new is better than the old? Basically, two reasons here, and we're going to elaborate on those. But, but number one, it, the, the new covenant is a better covenant because it has a better priest. And we'll talk about that in a second. Number two, it, it has better promises. And, and that's what we want. We want good promises and we want a good priest and that's what we have. Well, let's take it apart real quickly and let's just think about this. Well, the new covenant has a better priest. And again, if you look at verse one, it says, now the whole point of what the, the writer's been kind of building up to this. And he says, kind of the whole point of this deal is that we have a better covenant. And the reason we have a better covenant is we, we've got a better priest. And, and so we've got to, we've got to wrap our minds around that because he says, he says, This is what we're saying. We have such a high priest. Well, what does he mean, such a high priest? Well, look up in chapter 7, verse 26. He says, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Well, what is he talking about? If you're not with us last week, what we discovered was that Jesus, as our high priest, is able to save to the uttermost. In other words, he's able to save completely and forever. 
Those who draw near to God through Him. Now, why is He such a great high priest? The Old Testament didn't save anybody. All the Old Covenant did was postpone their sins for a year. On the Day of Atonement, they brought an offering. The next year, they came back on the Day of Atonement. Every year, they kept bringing an offering. And so it kept postponing. But it, it, it wasn't able to save anyone. And, and so... So the news better, he says, we've got a high priest that can save someone. Secondly, he says, we've got a high priest that, that men can draw near to God through him. Listen to the old covenant. Only one guy could get close to God. I mean, only one man, the high priest, one day a year. And we've talked about that. And we'll, we'll talk about that in, in probably great detail next week. But, but understand, nobody got close to God under the old covenant. But the writer says, we've got a high priest by which men draw near to him. And we're going to see more and more about that. And he says, we have such a high priest. And then he kind of defines him. Look in, look in verse 26 of chapter 7. Holy, he's innocent, he's unstained, he's separated from sinners. By the way, that doesn't mean that Jesus... Uh, is unwilling to hang around sinners. It means he's different in kind from sinners. But the amazing thing about Jesus, the high priest, he, he loved to hang out with sinners. I mean, he spent, he preferred sinners to religious people. I mean, you read the gospels. The, the charge the church or the charge the Pharisees had against Jesus was that he hangs out with wine bibbers and tax collectors. In other words, he's saying you, you hang out with people that are, they're drunkards and they work for the IRS. How dare you hang out with somebody like that? <laughs> That's what he was saying. So, so he, he was, he was separate. It's not that he was unwilling. He was different. And then it says he was exalted. Above the heavens. And the writer says, that's the kind of high priest we have. Now, if that's not enough to convince you that we have a better high priest, the writer now gives us three specific reasons that he's better. If you look in verse 1 of chapter 8, it says, first of all, he's better because he's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. So, so he's got a better seat. I mean, the fact that he even has a seat means he's better because in the old covenant, in the old system, the high priest, when he went into the most holy place, he couldn't sit down. Remember, he only went in one day a year and he had to take all these offerings. In fact, I heard he may have, he may have had to offer as many as 22 separate offerings to prepare to go into that place. And when he went in, he did the work. There was no seat in that, in the most holy place. You know why there was no seat? Because the work was never finished. Because when he came out, they had to start all over. And then next year they came back on the Day of Atonement. But, but, but every day, all day, they, they just kept offering and offering and offering. The work was never finished. And, and, so, and so Jesus has a better seat because Jesus' work is finished. When the scripture says that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, it, there's a, several nuances to what that means. But it meant the work was finished. In John 19, verse 30, it says, after they gave, offered Jesus the vinegar and he took that, that, uh, that vinegar drink or whatever it was, it says that he stated it is finished and he bowed his head and he gave up the ghost. And so the last thing Jesus said was this is finished. Now here's what that means. The reason Jesus could sit down at the right hand is because the penalty for your sin and the penalty for my sin 
was paid in full. So the reason he sat down first was because the work was finished. But secondly, it says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Well, in if you think about the kingdoms, in the kingdom, the most honored person sat at the right hand of the king. And so when Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, that what that says is that he had a position of honor, a position of authority, a position of rulership. Remember, God said, Jesus, you sit there while I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so it's a position of honor. John MacArthur said this, said to stand at the right hand of a king was a position of honor. But to be able to sit down beside the king was the supremely honorable position. And so when the reason Jesus got a better seat, it's a place of honor. It, it, it's a place of completion. The work's done. But, but here's what, and I didn't know this until I, I learned this this week. Um, the Jews had a thing called the Sanhedrin. It was kind of like their Supreme Court. And it kept authority, even though they were under the Roman Empire, they kind of, they, they did all the religious laws. Jesus appeared before the Sanhedrin. And so there was like 70 guys. And, of course, they had a leader. Now, here's what would happen. This is really intriguing. This is really interesting. When they met in session, what they would do is they would hand out judgments. You know, and they would either make condemnations or whatever. Well, the presiding officer sat here. Well, on his left was a scribe. And the scribe on the left, their responsibility was to write condemnations against the guilty. But he also had a... A scribe that sat on his right hand. You know what the guy on the right hand would do? He would write acquittals that would set people free. And so one of the nuances, one of the nuances, Jesus sitting at the right hand means that he is writing acquittals. Saying to the Father regarding those who believe in him and follow him, not guilty. He's innocent. She's free to go. And so that's kind of a picture. He had a better seat. Secondly, he's a better priest. Not only was the seat better, but, but the Bible says his sanctuary was better. Notice there in verse 2 uh, of chapter 8, it says he's a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up. So Jesus was in the, he had the real deal. Now, what he was saying is the Old Testament tabernacle, as good as it was, it wasn't the true. Now, it didn't mean it was false. It meant that it, it wasn't the original. It was a copy. Do you remember? And if you, if you read, if, and I've kind of been reading in Exodus. I don't know how this happens, but I've been in Exodus for three or four weeks in my quiet time, you know, in my, in my morning reading. And, and I've been reading about this whole tabernacle thing. And God was very, very specific, but it was still a pattern. It wasn't the original. And the scripture says that Jesus ministered in the original. And listen, can I just tell you, the original's better than a copy. Give you an example. Probably 18, 19 years ago, uh, good friends of ours, a couple in our church had, uh, had their first child, 
Uh, and back in that day, our church was small. We didn't have a lot of babies. And so we kind of went over to the hospital to see the baby and to kind of hang out with him. When we got up there, my friends, like, man, we, I videoed the whole thing and he plugs in the, and he wants me, to, he plugs in the video of, of the birth and, and the baby and all. And I'm sitting there thinking, he wants to watch a video. Meanwhile, the wife is sitting over here with the baby. And I'm thinking, I didn't come to see the video. I want to see the baby because the baby is the real deal. The video is the copy, right? Are you with me? Now, so that's what the writer's saying to those Jewish people that want to go back. He said, listen, you don't want to go back to the old. That's just a copy. Jesus is the original. Notice, and if we read on down there, and I think it's about verse 4 or 5, he talks about the, the Old Testament sanctuary being a shadow. See, a shadow, all a shadow does is reflect what's real, but it's not real, right? I mean, guys, have you, have you ever come home from work and, and decided to go hug your wife's shadow? No, we don't, you, you, we don't hug our kids' shadow. Why? Because there's, there's no substance. You want to you get a hold of the real thing. Well, that's what the writer was saying. Listen, you don't want to go back to the old the old covenant's the shadow. You, you want to you get a hold of Jesus because Jesus is the real deal. He's the original. So his sanctuary was better. His seat was better. And then it also says uh, he was serving, he was ministering. And so his, his service is better. The reason we have a better priest is because, simply because Jesus, he's just, he's just a better servant. Now, it's pretty interesting when you look at this because um, that word... In verse 2, if you look at verse 2, it says a minister in the holy places. Holy places, kind of a plural uh, noun there, but it's a reference to the most holy place. In other words, that's that place behind the veil. But it says he ministers there. And the, the word there is, is pretty interesting. It's uh, liturgo, as I guess the original word. And it meant a worker of the people. And it, it was used of, of uh, at least in classical Greek, it was used of a person who performed public duties. And so it, so it speaks of Jesus Christ today as a servant. That's amazing to me. Now, I know Mark 10.45 says the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many... That's what he came to. He came to be a servant. But, but think about this. The same Jesus that sat at the right hand of the majesty in heaven has the place of supreme honor, has finished the work of redemption, has paid the fullest price. At the same time, the scripture says he is still there serving the body of Christ. Now, you might be wanting to raise your hand and go, but you just said... The work was finished. If the work is finished, why is Jesus still serving? Well, the work of redemption is finished. The price has been paid in full. But if you were here last week, you remember, we have a high priest who, who ever lives to make intercession for us. The, the way Jesus serves in the temple today is, is he stands in the gap for you and me. When you're struggling... When you're going through a hard time, when, when life's getting really difficult and you don't really know what, you know, what to turn and, 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 and you're, you're desperate for God. Listen, Jesus is standing 
In fact, we see that in Act, when, when uh, Stephen was martyred in Acts chapter 7, at the end of his sermon, you know, they stoned him to death. And, and he says, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. You say, I thought he was sitting. Well, when, when his people are in trouble, guess what he does? He stands up. <laughs> and he stands in the gap for them. And so his service, his ministry is better. Uh, and the idea is that, listen, This is hard for us to get our mind around. We can't do anything on our own. We, if if we're going to do anything of significance, it's got to happen through Jesus. Colossians 3.17 basically says, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all to the glory of God, giving thanks through, or giving thanks to the Father through Him. And so, so it, it's only through Jesus that we can give thanks. And then if we turn over to Hebrews chapter uh, 13, verse 15, and we'll get to that in a couple of weeks. But basically that verse says, through Jesus, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess His name. And, and so if you're going to praise God, you got to do it through Jesus. If you're going to thank God, you got to do it through Jesus. If you're going to draw near to God, You've got to do it through Jesus. In fact, in John 15, 5, Jesus said, if you want to bear fruit, then you've got to remain in me because apart from me, you can do nothing. So if you're going to be fruitful, if you're going to be thankful, if you're going to be praiseworthy, if you're going to be close to God, you've got to come through Jesus. And so Jesus is ministering. He's got a better service. Listen, the Old Testament priest, he couldn't get anybody to God. And he had to give offering after offering after offering just to have the right to go in to give an offering for everybody else. But not Jesus. Jesus gave one offering, paid the whole debt. And now he's sitting and and occasionally standing at the right hand of God, interceding for his people. He has a better service. He has a better sanctuary. He has a better seat. And therefore, we have a better priest. And the reason the reason that we have a, a better covenant is because we've got a better priest. And that priest is... Look down at verse 6. He's mediating this, this better covenant. It says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates... Is better. Remember last week, a, a, a pre, a, the job of a priest was to mediate. Remember, we talked about you got the sinfulness of man, you got the holiness of God. We need a bridge. Well, in, in mediating, Jesus has built a bridge between our sinfulness and God's holiness, and He's kind of the way across. But it says He's built a bridge, and that bridge is based on better promises. Uh, that's what it says there in the end of verse 6. Uh, Since it is enacted on better promises, for if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Now you may be wondering, so, okay, so, so, um, so why didn't God just make the first one good? I mean, it was God's covenant, right? Why, why didn't he just make the first one? Well, why? In my sanctified imagination, I think God made the first one the way He did. So we would see that we were, that we desperately needed someone. In fact, Paul said the law was a tutor, a schoolmaster to point us to Christ. But the problem with the old, the, the fault, the faultiness of the old covenant was it had no way to 
to overcome the faultiness of the people. In other words, uh, the old covenant could tell us what not to do and tell us when we had done wrong, but it didn't have any way to empower us to do what was right. And so long, so God comes along with this new covenant uh, that's based on uh, better promises. Now, interestingly enough, uh, the word new, there, there's two different words for new uh, in, in, in the, this language, the Greek language. One kind of refers to um, new in kind, and one refers to new in type. Let me see um, if I can give you an example. Uh, new in kind, like if you got a, let's say you got a Silverado pickup and it's got 150,000 miles on it, and you take it, trade it in this week, and you come home with a new pickup. Maybe you even get a Ford, but let's just say you come home with a new pickup. You, you've got a new truck, but it, but it, it's new in kind. It's, it's not, it's not, it's just a new one of the old. But remember, anybody remember the flip phone? Anybody remember the flip phone? I, I remember I had a flip phone. I had a guy come in for, for some counseling and we got to talking and he starts taking notes on his iPhone. He hips, he, flip, he pulls out his iPhone. He starts taking notes. He says, yeah, man, I can take notes on the sermon. I can do all this stuff. You know, and I thought, man, I got to have one of them phones. That's a smartphone. Well, when, when you went from a flip phone to a smartphone, it wasn't just new in kind. It was new in type. The pickup's just new in kind. Well, this covenant, it's not new in kind. It is new. It, this is a different type of covenant. And let me tell you how it was different. That's where the promises are. First of all, it, it was an internal covenant as opposed to an external. When, uh, you say, what do you mean by that? When God gave them the commandments, where did God write them? On the tablets, right? God said, Moses, you come up on the mountain. Moses goes up on the mountain. Uh, the Bible says God writes them on the tablets. Two tablets, the Ten Commandments. And then you, if you know the story, he goes back down. He gets frustrated because they're sinning against God. He throws them down and breaks them, and he has to go back, right? Has to go back and get them written, and God writes them again. But God wrote them, God wrote them on, on stone and said, okay, y'all keep them. But in the New Covenant, the, the Scripture says there, I think it's about verse 10, it says that God says, I will write my laws on their heart. And I will put my thoughts and my, my truth in their mind. And so this new covenant is internal. And so uh, the reason that is, that is so significant is that what, what that allows is, is that allows the Holy Spirit to take God's word and to take God's truth and to teach us and to equip us and, um, and even to convict us. Have you ever had an experience where you were about to make a decision? Maybe you're about to go somewhere or you're about to buy something. And something in here said, shouldn't do that. Anybody ever had that happen? I can tell you some stories. Okay, uh, One writer said a friend has called that the inner control center. Well, the, the fact that the new covenant is an internal covenant, the Holy Spirit of God comes and lives in our heart. And He can help us make wise choices. He can help us. He is the one who teaches. He is the one who convicts. And by the way, let me say that. If you're about to spend some money or you're about to go somewhere or you're about to make a decision and you get this angst in your heart and you can't really put your finger on it, can I just give you some advice? Stop what you're doing. 
step back and say, God, what do I need to do here? Because God, as a believer, God has written His truth in our heart. And He's given us this Holy Spirit. And He uses that to direct us. And that's the difference in, in the covenant. Hey, listen, that's where the power comes from to keep the, to keep the deal. The, in the old covenant, they didn't have any power. God just said, don't do this and don't do this and don't do this. And they tried to do it and they couldn't do it. But we have the Holy Spirit living in us. And if we'll listen, and if we'll obey... We can overcome sin. You say, well, I, I, how do you know? Well, the Bible says, 1 Corinthians ten thirteen, no temptation has seized you except what's common to man. But God is faithful. will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able. But in every respect, he'll give us a way out. So, so it's, it's, it's new in type because it's an internal covenant. Secondly, uh, it, it's a personal covenant. Look down in your Bible there at verse 11. And he says, and they shall not teach uh, each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. In other words, this, this thing is personal. God says, listen, you can know me personally. In the Old Testament, it was about religion. In the Old Testament, it was about keeping the rules and keeping the law and doing what you were supposed to and going to the festival. But no, no, in the New Testament, the New Covenant, it's about you knowing God through Jesus Christ. It's about a personal relationship. Do you have a personal relationship with God through Jesus? See, that's what sets, listen, that, that, that's what, uh, that's what sets Christianity apart. I mean, think about this. I, I heard a guy talking about this this week. Have you ever met a Buddhist that said, I got a, I got a personal relationship with Buddha? No, why? Because he's dead. Huh? He's dead. You ever, ever met a Muslim that says, I got a, I got a personal relationship with Muhammad. No, he's dead. We have a personal relationship with Jesus. You know why? He ain't dead, y'all. He's alive. And hey, listen, God says, listen, they're going to know me. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've what? You've seen the Father. So the, the deal is, listen, this thing, the, the, the promises are better because it's a, it's a, it's an internal deal. You know, God writes it on our heart. The promise is better because it's a personal relationship. It's, it's not some religious thing. I mean, this is, this is relational. Man, I know Jesus. He knows me. We sing that old song. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. Do, do you know him today? Do you know him personally? Because you can. In fact, you must know him personally to experience the new covenant. See, it's, it's internal. It's personal. I would say thirdly, the third reason that it's a be- the promises are better. Notice down in your Bible there at verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Man, I don't know about you, but that is good news to me. God will remember my sins no more. Because I'm just telling you, I got some stuff. And I'm thinking that you've got some stuff back there. Hopefully not this morning, but back there somewhere. And when you give it to Jesus, when you come to Jesus, He says, I will, I will remember 
their sins no more. Now you might be thinking, but Mike, you talk about how awesome God is and, and he's, uh, he's all powerful and he's all knowing. If God's all knowing, how can he not remember my sins? Can I tell you how he, he doesn't remember our sins? He chooses not to. He says, I'll, I will remember their sins no more. He doesn't say he doesn't know about them. Now that's hard for us because most of us have somebody in our life that rather than choosing not to remember our sins, they choose to remember them. You may be married to that person. And they may remind you. Or, 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 or that person, that may be your parents. Or your grandparents. Or your kids. Or your grandkids. Or that may be somebody at, at work and they, and they always, they, they always remind you. Oh, but you remember. I remember hearing this story. This guy goes to counseling and uh, he's having trouble with his wife. He goes to counseling. He tells the counselor, he says, my wife gets historical. The counselor says, no, what I think you meant to say is your wife gets hysterical. He says, no, no, she gets historical. She starts bringing up everything. She just keeps bringing it all up. Listen, God chooses. He chooses not to remember our sins against us see the the new it's just better the old testament could the old testament couldn't deal with all it could do was postpone i, I read this this week uh guy was talking about how uh and i'll just move it into my personal experience i had a lunch with uh, a guy this week and uh, we need to talk about some things and so uh put it on a credit card and uh you know, you think, well, when you put on a credit card, you pay for it. And the people at the place, I guess they assumed that I paid for it because they, they didn't make me wash dishes or anything. They let us go. But the reality is, even though I put that lunch on the credit card, it has not been paid for. End of the month, the bill will come and a check will be written. And then it's paid for. In the Old Testament, when they made those offerings and they did those sacrifices, all all they did was postpone until Jesus came. And when Jesus came, Jesus wrote the check to pay for those sins. Just like Jesus wrote the check to pay for your sins and my sins. Now, I don't don't want to over-spiritualize financial transactions, but think of it this way. If you live under the old covenant, all you're doing is post, you're, you're putting it on credit, you're, you're piling up a credit account. But when you come to Jesus, it's like having a debit card because at the moment you get Jesus, it's paid in full. And the reason the new covenant is a better covenant is there's a better priest and he's given better promises. And the best one of all, is that he will remember our sins no more. He will remember your sins no more. Now the question is, do you know him? Have you received Jesus Christ? Have you experienced the new covenant in his blood? And if, if you're not sure, or if the answer is no, my invitation to you this morning, is to come give your life to Jesus. Listen, when you give your life to Jesus, it's internal. God will change your heart. When you give your life to Jesus, it's personal. You got a right relationship 
with the living God. When you give your life to Jesus, it is merciful. God will remember your sins no more. You'll be free. So do you need to give your life to Jesus today? Let's bow together. Father, uh, in, the, in the name that's above every name, the name of Jesus. But I, it's, God, what a thrill to know that, that we have a great high priest sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high, ministering in the true tent. He, he, he's mediating a better covenant. And that covenant is that when we come to him, we're free. We move from death to life. We move from guilty to innocent. We move from shame to forgiveness and freedom. And Jesus, the scripture says, that you'll never remember our sins against us anymore. And so, Lord Jesus, I want to pray for that man, that woman in the auditorium this morning. Maybe they've never totally trusted Jesus. That young person that's never been born again, that's never been saved. They've never given their life to Jesus. Lord, my prayer is that today they would say, Pastor Mike, I want to give my heart to Jesus. I want mercy. I want a relationship. I want Him in my life. And God, if that's their desire, my my hope is that they would make a prayer of commitment this morning. They would invite Jesus to come into their life as their Lord and Savior. So Father, in these next moments, Would you have your will in every heart and would you have your will in every life? And we'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and the honor and the glory for it all. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.